Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome history, friends, patrons, all to the Korean War, episode 1, America Dawns. Yes, indeed, as you're surely aware by now, we here at When Diplomacy Fails, as in me, have decided to fly by the seat of our pants for a change and take a break from the long war in the 17th century to cover a conflict in history known of, but not properly known. I'm here to change all that, and for most of 2018, we'll be taking an in-depth look one of history's forgotten conflicts through the formula of when diplomacy fails. 
You won't be getting a blow-by-blow account of every Korean skirmish. Instead, you'll be getting the diplomatic, geopolitical, global strategic view of the event, the different players involved and the tensions between each of them as the world polarised into the state of affairs which will become known as the Cold War. The fact that the Korean War is still referred to as the Forgotten War says an awful lot about the event in history and, in many ways, having looked at the war as I have done, it's really difficult to account for its forgotten nature. This is because, as we'll see, the Korean War wasn't merely a battle between North and South, it was a clash of world interests. Both the USSR and China stood on the side of the Communist North, while the United States stood firmly on the side of the South. Yet this picture, which has been commonly disseminated, completely underrates and altogether camouflages the involvement of the United Nations and the 16 different countries within that institution that sent their own delegations. Commonwealth troops, British interests, the concerns regarding a Soviet strike in the West while everyone fawned over the Far East, the Anglo-American tensions, the potential for Chinese partnership, the great game which everyone attempted to play through the Korean battlefield, the search for greater defence spending, all of these are inherently fascinating aspects of the wider war, and if the Korean War itself is seen as forgotten, then the idea that there was more to the conflict than communism versus America, or North versus South, has been forgotten entirely. I am of course really excited to jump into an era we've never even come close to in the past, and it should be added that we're not jumping in here blind to the era as a whole. I would like to draw your attention to the five-part Cold War Crash Course if you haven't listened already, in case you missed it because you're not sure what it is or you're just too eager to jump into the Korean War, in which case just a few more minutes and we'll be right in it. That crash course there will give you guys a good overview of the kind of issues and debates at stake in the immediate post-war world, as well as how the two ideological and geographical camps drifted into opposite sides of the board. It is an intensive course, which requires a bit of concentration, but after that three hours or so of content, you will be well prepared to know who is who and what is what when we properly begin here. The role which Europe played in the Korean War is not necessarily clear-cut, but the impact that the Korean War had on Europe is a subject which we will certainly be occupied by. As we've certainly learned from the Cold War crash course, Stalin felt his position in Europe to be weak rather than strong, yet his foreign policy gaffes and the Soviet inability to push its influence westward without the use of force all cast a shadow of terrifying aggression and expansion not merely on the USSR, but on the communist doctrine itself. Such developments produced results in the West, as alliances with the United States had crystallised, attitudes had hardened, and the Cold War had been given a serious ideological and military boost that sustained it until the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Korean War is this as underrated as it is misunderstood. It was not just a skirmish in a far-off land, and it wasn't just a straightforward instance of the United States exercising its muscle to contain the spread of communism. It was the first proper test of the abilities of the United Nations, as much as it was a disconcerting development to the largely Pacific members of NATO, who had joined NATO after all to maintain peace. It was what one historian has called Stalin's most serious miscalculation of all, and it also saw the entry of the People's Republic of China onto the world stage, with all the complications this provided for Anglo-American diplomacy. We will learn throughout this series that Far from a miscalculation, the Korean War was Stalin's swan song in scheming and intrigue. If you've listened to the introduction episodes, you'll know the kinds of theories we're planning to put forward in this series. 
Throughout it, my aims are to demonstrate that the Korean War, far from an accident or miscalculation, was a conflict instigated by Stalin and needed by the Truman administration. To some of you this is controversial, to others it is a very interesting way to look at it, but I hope I'll have your patience and trust throughout. As is customary for wars like these, we're going to take our analysis into the background, which means that this episode here will have some overlap with the Cold War crash course, but because we've been through much of the terms and concepts, we wanted to dwell on them as much as we would have, and we've been meeting them, or indeed other important characters, for the first time. Hopefully, this will make our story more streamlined and fluid. But either way, you're stuck with me until the story ends, and as is my want, I'll be peeling back the ears and uncovering what made all the relevant actors tick. To do so involves some detective work, as much as it involves ignoring the actual conflict on the Korean Peninsula for a good few episodes as we build relentlessly towards the outbreak of war. To put it in perspective for you guys, and this may horrify some of you, we don't examine the actual outbreak of the war until episode 22. Until then, we spend our time diligently preparing the way for its outbreak, as only when diplomacy fails can, by looking at the different actors, their concerns, their fears, their strengths and their weaknesses. I hope this doesn't sound too crazy to you guys, and I hope you'll trust me to lead you all through it. Without any further ado then, and you have been very, very patient with all my rambling, let's get into it, as I take you to 1947. Since we've spent so long introducing the episode, our song of the week this week, or one of the many songs that we'll have this week, will not be preceded by any advertisements. What I will say instead is that this here is one of my utmost favourite songs, and that I hope you enjoy it. This here is the Singing Sergeants singing Old Black Joe, a song originally by Stephen Foster. Enjoy it guys, and we'll be back with the first episode of The Korean War. Music now from the pen of one of America's greatest composers, Stephen Foster. The singing sergeants, Ward Officer Robert Landers directing, step front and center to sing what was probably the last of the great Foster songs, Old Black Joe. Yeah. 
As far as blatantly clear policy transitions go, perhaps none were as blatant during United States President Harry Truman's time in office than the policy which bears his name. The Truman Doctrine, explained and performed by Truman before a jammed Congress on the 12th of March 1947, was the clearest and most significant display yet of American intentions to actively involve itself in the goings-on of the wider world. There could be no question either of a post-World War isolationism or of a lacklustre response to the challenges posed by the end of the Second World War. The United States and its allies, Truman insisted here, would have to stand not merely against the forces of communism, but also for the principles of freedom and speech in the press and in thought. The speech lasted less than 20 minutes, but by its end it was apparent that a new era of American foreign policy had dawned. In the weeks before Truman's speech, on the 12th of March 1947, reports on the troubled state of affairs in the Mediterranean had given many media outlets and American statesmen pause for thought. The Greek Civil War, which pitted the Communists against the monarchy, and the Straits Crisis in Turkey, which saw the Soviets pressure Istanbul for full access to the Aegean Sea, provided the impetus and evidence for the dangers of communism. If Greece is lost, began an editorial in Newsweek, a communist scythe will curve around the head of Turkey, which already has communist bayonets at its back. Russia would or could control the eastern Mediterranean. In an ABC documentary, one reporter noted that Someone has got to do something, and they're all looking at your Uncle Sam. The New York Times even declared that The survival of Western civilization is held to depend on our actions. There had evidently been a build-up of expectation in the weeks before Truman's speech, and it was keenly hoped that the president will take American people fully and frankly into his confidence, as one report had it. The historian Denise Botsdorf wrote that, Truman's address articulated a new policy, the Truman Doctrine, and marked a turning point in US foreign policy, setting a new course for the nation's relationship with the Soviet Union and the world. As a call to Cold War crisis, the speech also would have far-reaching consequences that represented both the best of the United States the Marshall Plan, and its worse, the arms race and repeated military intervention abroad. By making plain his intention to advocate this new stance on foreign affairs, particularly in the troubled spots of the world where the Soviet influence and civil strife seemed to walk ominously in tandem, Truman was setting the stage for the Cold War whether he knew it or not. As Botsdorf alluded to, though, the president was also setting the United States up for a far more active policy than she had previously adopted. The following year, in 1948, Truman would sign the Marshall Plan into law, and in the process, he would grant an economic lifeline to several impoverished and embattled nations struggling to rebuild amidst the depressed realities of a post-war world. Here's an extract of Truman speaking on the Truman Doctrine, though, and what Americans can expect from this new policy approach. This is a serious course upon which we embark. I would not recommend it, except that the alternative is much more serious. The United States contributed $341 billion toward winning World War II. This is an investment in world freedom and world peace. The assistance that I'm recommending for Greece and Turkey 
amounts to a little more than one-tenth of one percent of this investment. It is only common sense that we should safeguard this investment and make sure that it was not in vain. The seeds of totalitarian regimes are nurtured by misery and want. They spread and grow in the evil soil of poverty and strife. They reach their full growth when the hope of a people for a better life has died. We must keep that hope alive. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedom. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world, and we shall surely endanger the welfare of this nation. Great responsibilities have been placed upon us by the swift movement of events. I am confident that the Congress will face these responsibilities squarely. In between these two policy statements in 1947 and 48, a critically important American policy expert penned an article for the journal Foreign Affairs entitled The Sources of Soviet Conduct, wherein it was laid out in the starkest of language what the Soviet Union sought to gain by destabilizing the world's democracies, where her strengths lay and where her weaknesses could be exploited. While his secretary used a pseudonym X to disguise his identity, this was soon revealed, and it only added to the idea that American perceptions of their former ally had reached a new low. The secretary wrote at one point that, It is clear that the main element of any United States policy towards the Soviet Union must be that of a long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansionist tendencies. In light of the above, it will be clearly seen that the Soviet pressure against the free institutions of the Western world is something that can be contained only by the adroit and vigilant application of counterforce at a series of constantly shifting geographical and political points, corresponding to the shifts and manoeuvres of Soviet policy, but which cannot be charmed or talked out of existence. The Russians look forward to a duel of infinite duration, and they see that already they have scored great successes, it must be borne in mind that there was a time when the Communist Party represented far more of a minority in the sphere of Russian national life than Soviet power today represents in the world community. George Kennan was the author of this article, and we'll hear a lot more about him in the future as we progress with this series. Perhaps designed to demonstrate that the Soviet Union was in fact not as invincible as its propaganda liked to suggest, the releasing of this article in July 1947 by George Kennan amidst the fallout of the Truman Doctrine revelation hit Soviet-American relations like a bomb. Any notion of the Marshall Plan aid reaching the Soviet bloc countries was quickly shot down as Joseph Stalin's suspicions of Western intentions reached their apex and the Molotov Plan was developed in direct imitation to the American example with very, very different results for those that were targeted by it. Whether or not Truman had intended to light such a fire under American-Soviet relations, it was clear that the period of uneasy association and calm acceptance of the creeping Soviet influence was coming to an end. If the United States managed to establish the rhetorical and 
ideological basis for combating Soviet influence and expansion around the world between 1947-48 than it was the establishment of the North Atlantic Treaty, NATO, which provided the necessary military and political basis for such a conflict. Keenly connected and in tune with the pressing concerns of the Western governments, particularly those in France and Britain, Truman's approval of NATO was the logical conclusion to the previous years of ideological sabre-rattling. Armed with the cooperation and collective security provided by NATO, Soviet-inspired communist movements could no longer present such an insidious challenge to the legitimate governments of the West. Yet, as was clear to Washington at the time, the NATO signees were interested in preventing war. They had no interest in fighting one. From defence, the several signees of NATO were now interested above all in deterrence. From 1948 to 1949, a series of startling challenges were presented to this newfound security, as Soviet-inspired communism toppled the government of Czechoslovakia and created a communist satellite of the Russians in February 1948. At the same time, as we've learned in the Cold War crash course, talks on the future of Germany collapsed, leading to the Berlin blockade, which tested the resolve as well as the organisational skills of the Western Allies to properly mobilise a response to the increasing belligerence and expansionism of the Soviet influence. The United States was gravely concerned that another coup was in the pipeline for Italy as well, where the Italian Communist Party appeared to receive a groundswell of support. In addition, the aforementioned conflicts in Greece and the continued tensions over the Turkish Straits moved the United States to properly involve itself on the military side of the argument. Containment would remain the order of the day, but this containment would be best served not merely with a pledge to defend the far-flung democracies, but also to cooperate militarily with those closer to home, in a sphere presumed relatively safe in the years before. When the United States intimated their intentions to intervene economically and perhaps militarily in Greece in late 1947, the communist movements within that country, above all under the advice of Josip Tito's communist Yugoslav insurgents, appealed in writing to the United Nations that the interference of a foreign power in Greece was unwarranted and illegal, which in itself is somewhat ironic. The United Nations claimed Yugoslavia's Communist Party should send a delegation to Greece to ensure the fair and even treatment of the Greek people regardless of their political affiliation. Such actions seemed to indicate the lengths that the Yugoslavs and to a lesser extent the Soviets were prepared to go to undermine democracy in the Balkans region which, like the British, had so feared the expansion of Russia into the Dardanelles with the Eastern Question a century before, now the British formally passed the problem onto the United States in a written agreement made a few months before Truman declared his doctrine. In his book, A New Kind of War, historian Howard Jones described America's policy in Greece and the importance that the Truman administration attached to that theatre at the time. Jones wrote that, the USSR would rather have a weak United Nations in Greece than a powerful United States. The free world was facing the most ruthless realists that the world had ever seen. Failure to pursue a tough policy against the Greek communists would encourage the Russians. No one could make peace with the communist-directed movement seeking to subvert an established government. Though the present Greek government was feeble, foolish and even disgraceful, it deserved protection because Western observers had certified that government as having been chosen by the people. 
the United States must stand firm in Greece, for if the Soviets won control over all the Balkans, the Near East would fall and the United Nations would be killed in its cradle. The litany of disputes emerging from post-war Europe fed into the Western suspicion of Soviet intentions. Led by Anglo-American diplomacy, with American money and British experience supposedly providing a winning combination, the late 1940s saw reluctant America gradually pour money and manpower into the continent, reaching its climax with the inception of NATO. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization was an agreement which had been based on the 1948 Treaty of Brussels Alliance created between Britain, France and the Low Countries. So it was that for three successive years, America demonstrated its resolve in the face of expansion and ambition by the Soviet Union. In March 1947 it was the Truman Doctrine, in April 48 it was the Marshall Plan, and in April 49 the North Atlantic Treaty was agreed to. Events in Greece and Turkey had also demonstrated the idea of the domino effect in the containment policy. That idea that the fall of one democratic regime would lead to the fall of subsequent regimes across the world. This domino theory was validated, it was said, by the events of Eastern Europe and that coup in February 1948 in Prague, and such momentum would continue pushing west, it was said, and into the Mediterranean, unless it was forcibly halted. Yet, there were of course dangers to halting any Soviet expansion forcefully. In his article examining the impact of the Korean War on the Cold War, historian Robert Jervis presented the image of American foreign policy as inconsistent and unfocused before the war on the Korean Peninsula broke out and sharpened everyone's attitudes and determination. Before that point, Jervis believes that American policy in the years 1946-50 to was not highly coherent. This is an idea we'll explore later on in the series with results that may surprise you. Conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union was high though. There were crises too frequent and familiar to mention, and decision makers talked of the real possibility of war, especially when tensions reached their apogee during the high point of the Berlin blockade in mid-1948. However, the US response was not proportionate to the perceived dangers. When discussing the international situation during the tense moments both of the Berlin blockade and the creation of West Germany by the merging of the three zones under French, British and American control by April 49, one is drawn to the Western thought process which upheld that the Soviets would retaliate in the West if they felt their prestige suitably snubbed, or if they believed that the promise of communism was beginning to crack. By challenging the Soviets forcibly, in other words, one may prevent the expansion of their message, but they may also force Moscow into a harsh and rash policy course taken to save face. The notion of saving face remained an important one in the delicate post-war world, and while it may not have been quite accurate to talk of Soviet national honour, it was certainly reasonable to imagine that countering the strong public picture given off by communism in one sphere could provoke a compensatory response somewhere else in Europe or in the Far East. Several briefings on the likelihood of war with Soviet Russia between the years 1946-49 to were given to Truman's administration in light of the consistent developments and rapidly polarising world as the communist doctrine spread its wings. One briefing in late 1948 had it that the USSR is still seeking to achieve its aims predominantly by political means, accompanied of course by the factor of military intimidation. 
The tactics, which it is employing, however, themselves heighten the danger that military complications may arise from fortuitous causes or from miscalculation. Another month later, the conviction was added that, now and for the foreseeable future, there is a continuing danger that war will arise, either through Soviet miscalculation of the determination of the United States to use all the means at its command to safeguard its security, through Soviet misinterpretation of our intentions, or through US miscalculation of Soviet reactions to measures which we might take. During the Berlin blockade, the fear was that the prospect of the growing strength of the West Germany and West Europe governments could lead the Soviet Union to feel her security menaced and induce a decision that it's now or never and the expectation that hostilities now at least would forestall this growing Western strength, as one historian put it. In a sense, these fears could be defined as a fear of breakdown in relations, a fear that diplomacy might fail. While it was believed by many around President Truman that Joseph Stalin was planning a rebuilding and repairing program immediately following the events of the Second World War, the consistent involvement of communist agents in Europe and the standoff during the Berlin blockade made it difficult to dismiss the idea that the Soviet Union was capable of acting forcefully even with this rebuilding going on in the background, and that its agents were well disposed to find the weak points and pressure points when they did act against Western interests. In the years before the Korean War broke out, the United States was also struggling with the idea of its newfound world power status, a fact which became evident as it butted heads with the British during the Korean War. A commonly parroted argument among the financially wise in the late 1940s revolved around the idea that American debt had reached catastrophic levels and that the trauma of this financial strain, coupled with the immense commitments and monies made to Europe under the Marshall Plan, contributed to the idea that America was approaching dangerous financial territory which could topple all of its commitments and lead to a second Great Depression. For example, in September 1949, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers responded to a government paper that urged an extra $2 billion be spent on defence, claiming that the resulting deficit would have such adverse effects on the functioning of the domestic economy as to threaten total national security in ways which must be weighed seriously against whatever gains for national security in the strategic and diplomatic sense would result from those levels of expenditures. Facing down such startling economic challenges in an era when the economic as much as the military and political theories were not as well defined as today, the conclusion reached by many was that the US simply couldn't afford any more foreign commitments. The attitude towards swollen defence budgets or expenditure on any considerable level seemed to spook American policymakers, as the United States was, in line with old traditions, disarming and demobilising after a total war, which the Second World War of course had been. The Korean War would prove the critical ingredient that changed this tradition, but reaching this perspective would take the Truman administration some time. It was when considering the accepted facts of the day that the Truman administration agreed to a startling set of policy principles in mid-1949. As far as Korea went, this administration upheld that the going-ons in that region of the world did not concern American interests, and that her resources would be spent better elsewhere. The extraction of American military personnel from the peninsula was telling, as was the general disengagement from the Asian theatre in a bid to soothe the Sino-American relationship. 
This trend in American foreign policy is often pointed to as one of the major reasons for the Korean War breaking out. In other words, because of American disinterest and absence from South Korea, the North believed it would have an easy time of it. This is not quite the case, and we'll see in later episodes how this trend in American foreign policy underwent a fundamental shift from late January 1950 for a number of reasons. The historian Mineo Nakajima wrote that by February 1950, the policy-making machinery in Washington had been confronted by three major losses. What he called the loss of nuclear monopoly in August 1949 when the Soviets detonated their first atomic bomb, the loss of China in October 1949 when Mao Zedong's communist regime finally won out against the nationalists of Chiang Kai-shek, and the loss of Chinese Titoism after the conclusion of the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, Alliance and Mutual Assistance in February 1950 demonstrated that the USSR and China were beginning to work out a new Asian policy without America. These successive blows to the American perception of its position in the world led directly to a revolutionary new foreign policy approach, blandly deemed NSC-68. We'll become very familiar in episodes to come with this policy report, but since this episode is designed more to introduce us to the major terms, let's look at what was meant by Chinese Titoism. Chinese Titoism referred to the idea that Mao Zedong would be a leader of communism in his own right, and would not be beholden to Moscow. This term was taken from Josip Tito's communist regime in Yugoslavia, and the cool relations it enjoyed with Moscow since 1948, after Tito had attempted to go his own way in the communist world, which of course was a cardinal sin in a communist doctrine which demanded unswerving loyalty and obedience from all communist states at all times to the person of Joseph Stalin. The signing of an alliance between the Soviets and Chinese on the 14th of February 1950 signified that Moscow and Beijing could and would be able to forge ahead with mutually beneficial relations, regardless of the ill will or tensions felt between the two leaders in the past. US foreign policy had thus been hit with a succession of shocks, and neither its nuclear monopoly nor the isolation of China seemed secure any longer. These were things to consider when laying out the country's foreign policy in the world. In Truman's mind, there was also cause for feeling apathetic about the regime in place in South Korea. Syngman Rhee, the president of the South, or the Republic of Korea, had presented himself as an ally of the West and of Western democracy, but Rhee and his allies in South Korea had proved perfectly willing to engage in ruthless and often brutal methods to prop up his own regime. This clouded the enthusiasm which the United States had for its ideological ally, as Rhee's brand of Korean democracy seemed far less free and open than the United States' interpretation of that form of government. Truman himself would later comment acidly on Rhee's regime in his memoirs that I did not care for the methods used by Rhee's police to break up political meetings and control political enemies, and I was deeply concerned over the Rhee government's lack of concern about serious inflation that swept the country. Yet, we had no choice but to support Rhee. Indeed, the United States had no choice but to support Rhee's regime, because even if, as Nakajima put it, the United States had become disappointed with South Korea, the alternative was to surrender the peninsula not merely to the communist north, but also to the Soviet-Chinese communist bloc. Considering this, the words of the US Secretary of State Dean Acheson that he used in his speech to the National Press Club on the 12th of January 1950 
provided Rhee's regime with an immense cause for concern. Within his speech, Dean Acheson seemed to indicate that the US defence line in Asia ran from the Aleutians through Japan and Okinawa to the Philippines, thus excluding the Republic of Korea and Taiwan from the area of vital strategic interest, the United States. Should such an attack occur, Acheson said, the initial reliance must be on the people attacked to resist it, and then on the commitments of the entire civilised world under the Charter of the United Nations. This stand revealed by Washington naturally brought considerable dissatisfaction and irritation to the Syngman Rhee regime in Seoul, especially as it was picked up by the relevant media outlets and distributed throughout the world. Suddenly Rhee was able to read for himself that America didn't consider Korea a region of importance to their interests. If he was furious at the frankness of this statement, coming at a time when tensions on the peninsula were at a boiling point, then he can't have been greatly surprised. As my examination of this event will demonstrate in later episodes though, there was so much more going on during this speech than the infamous implications commonly pointed to today. For the longest time, America's contribution to South Korean defence had been lagging behind. Operating on a shoestring budget, far more interested with the rebuilding of a democratic Japan and the focus on European affairs, there seemed little money in the kitty left over for the propping up of Rhee's troubled regime. America's ambassador to South Korea was recalled to Washington in the spring of 1950 and was told by General Lemnitzer, the man in charge of military aid in the Department of Defense, that The question of military assistance to the Republic of Korea at the present time is essentially a political one, inasmuch as South Korea is not regarded as of any particular value to overall American strategic positions in the Far East. Indeed, on the 23rd of June 1950, Two days before the invasion of South Korea began, plans for reducing America's military advisors in Korea from 472 to 242 by January 1951 were being discussed between the State Department in Washington and America's embassy in Seoul. It would thus be perfectly fair to say that the impression given off by Washington towards both its allies and its rivals was that of disinterest in Korean affairs and of even non-intervention should push come to shove. Now, what if I told you that this impression was deliberate and that far from ignorant of the situation, the upper echelons of America's government and policymakers knew full well the deficiencies of the South Korean defense situation? What would you say if I told you that? Well, you'd probably think I was crazy. Maybe one of those conspiratorial hacks out to blacken the name of America's foreign policy. Well, I'm not one of those, but what I am is armed with the latest historical evidence and source material much of it classified for some time, and still more of it existing outside the reach and scope of most accounts of the Korean War. Have you ever wondered why it was the case that things seemed to work out as they did? That America, with all its intelligence services keeping a clue in on current events, reading radio chatter and learning of Soviet developments, somehow didn't see the attack on South Korea coming? Wasn't it a great coincidence that Stalin's delegate in the United Nations Security Council was AWOL, just at the moment when a condemnation of North Korea's policy and a recommendation for intervention was about to go through. Wasn't it also very convenient that after the Korean War, America was alienated from the People's Republic of China, and America's military budget increased massively from 15 to 70 billion, thereby enabling it to subsequently fund the Cold War it intended to fight against the Soviet Union, and outspend Moscow in the process. 
I'm not a tinfoil hat wearing historian, as you surely know, but if all this sounds too good to be true in your mind, and if you know your Korean War history, and you always found the outbreak of the war somewhat puzzling or even unconvincing, then I welcome you guys to put aside your traditional explanations of the Korean War and try to come to this series with an open mind. And I know it's difficult, I know it's controversial, and trust me, I've already received some feedback from certain angry and not too polite listeners threatening me or informing me that what I have is completely wrong. But in my defense, you've only listened to two or three episodes, so maybe give the rest of it a chance. And then, when you listen to the conclusion near the end of this year, you can tell me for sure that I am in fact a crackpot and that I should never have started this series to begin with. Until then, though... I think you do owe me a chance, at least, considering the fact that I've never steered you wrong before, at least not deliberately, and that we have approached other conflicts, such as the July Crisis and 1916, in a similar frame of mind, and you seem to enjoy those. So give yourself a chance to learn a bit from this and enjoy this perspective here as well. I'm not trying to offend anyone, I'm not trying to make anyone angry, and I'm certainly not what you would call a leftist or biased historian out to blacken the name of America. What I am is someone who is really interested in the Korean War and found this new perspective and I want to present it to you guys. So give me a chance and please, please keep your manners and we'll all get along nicely. If you'll let me, I plan on breaking apart the common consensus on the conflict and placing the conflict of the Korean War in its proper context. I hope you'll join me next time then, where we will introduce the complex beast known as the United Nations, and ask how its supreme commander during the Korean War, a certain Douglas MacArthur, was spending his years from 1945. If you'll join me, and if you've enjoyed this first episode of the Korean War, then thanks. Thanks for giving me a chance, and thanks for letting me start this brand new series in an era we've never really dipped our toe into before. I hope you enjoy what's to come, and I'm really, really excited to present it to you guys in perhaps the most stuffed schedule When Diplomacy Fails has ever endured. But we're well prepared, we're very excited, and there's so much goodness to come. So if you'll join me next time in a few days, then we'll be delivering episode two to you guys. Thanks for listening then, and I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.